You're listening to Michigan News from MLive on Friday, September 1st. I'm Patrick Shea. Yes, it's September already. That's good news for football fans. We'll have a brief preview of the weekend schedule for Michigan's top teams later on. And fall might be in the air, but as meteorologist Mark Torregrossa explains, early September could bring some of the highest temperatures Michigan's seen all summer. Yes, it's still summer. Mark will also tell us more about the severe storms that broke out in parts of the state late last week. Also on the show today, we'll hear why the Upper Peninsula city of Menominee is a highly prized location for marijuana retailers, many of whom are competing for a spot in town. But before all of that, a fascinating story about Michigan's most iconic pizza chain, you know the one, which opened stores in a hostile foreign nation last winter. The company's attempting to sever ties now, but it's complicated. More on that just ahead, here on Michigan News from MLive. We're starting today's show a little farther from home than usual. In Russia, you can't get a latte from Starbucks or a Big Mac from McDonald's, but you can get a hot and ready pizza from Michigan's own Little Caesars. Like so many other American franchises, the company cut ties with Russia last year, but one Little Caesars manager in Moscow has kept his store open for business. Joining us is MLive reporter Rose White, who spoke with that business owner and wrote all about it at MLive.com. Hi, Rose. Hi, thanks for having me. So I honestly didn't realize you'd find a Little Caesars overseas. What's the global footprint of this Michigan company like? Yeah, so there are actually thousands of Little Caesars locations across 27 countries. Um, And the first stores opened in Russia um, in January of last year. But uh, Little Caesars' big expansion plan uh, kind of screeched to a halt only a few months after when, when the war started in Ukraine. And what was that response? What was Little Caesars' reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I know out of context, that sounds almost like a silly question, but you've reported that there are many multinational franchises that cut ties with Russia as the war started. What do they hope that'll accomplish? So about a thousand global multinational companies um, have pulled out of Russia since the war started. And Little Caesars is one of those. Last year, they they announced that they were suspending all of their operations in Russia. Um, and so the, the goal of this um, is to create uh, what researchers call an economic blockade. Um, so there's a Yale professor who's kept tabs on all of these companies, and, and he describes it as the war being fought on two fronts, um, economic and military. So we, we've seen this strategy played out before. Um, in the 1980s, brands like General Motors and Coca-Cola pulled out of South Africa because of racist apartheid policies. Um, and that sort of helped in addition to the government sanctions that um, tried to cripple the economy. So it's these two sort of big factors um, that can can really have an impact on the Russian economy as it kind of uh, focuses in on itself a little bit more and, and has to rely on just its own participation to keep going. So I think we've set up the background to the story now. Little Caesars opened stores in Russia, and just a few months later, they cut ties because of the war. But meanwhile, there's this man in Moscow, a Little Caesars franchise owner, who decides to keep making pizza anyways. Yeah, so Bogdan Lomako is the general manager of the Little Caesars franchises in Russia. 
So, you know, in, in case you're unfamiliar, the franchise model is you buy in to license the brand um, and you're kind of using a lot of the company's vendor agreements, website, social media, and all that. Um, so Lamaco and a franchisee invested about $3.5 million U.S. million in a plan to open 70 Russian locations. Um, and I think, you know, to, to think about Bogdan, he's... Um, a businessman. He has a family. You know, he's someone who lives in Russia and did not expect this war to take place. So he was somebody who had this big plan to establish Little Caesars in Russia and and really create a business there. Um, But the war really upended those plans. So when Little Caesars made its announcement that it's suspending operations of all locations, which are franchise-owned, he shut down for a couple of weeks. He paid his employees, he paid his bills. um, But at a certain point, the pain of that got to be too much. He's a businessman who's now facing this lost investment um, because of something completely unexpected and outside of his control. So he ended up reopening. Um, and so Little Caesars at this point, they have cut ties, but Lamaco is, uh, he's still able to keep operating, but he says he's operating sort of uh, with a leash on. Um, because of the franchise agreement, he doesn't have access to the website. He doesn't have access to social media. He doesn't have access to vendor contracts. Um, so that's kind of been really uh, the crippling part for him. But uh, this Yale professor I spoke with, he says that's kind of the whole point of Little Caesars cutting ties. It's supposed to make it painful for these business owners. Hmm. So so how does this work for Lamaco now? Little Caesars says, we're not doing business in Russia, but a manager of a Little Caesars in Moscow is doing business in Russia. Has there been any correspondence directly between Lamaco and the Little Caesars headquarters, I, I guess, in Detroit? Lamaco says it's been a lot of silence. Um, he's been really pushing to get access to the website and social media and vendor contracts, those things that I mentioned. Um, and he just he wants Little Caesars to kind of loosen their franchise restrictions so he can keep operating and take over the business. But, you know, from Little Caesar's perspective, they've cut ties. They've pulled out of Russia. They're not going to be supporting this business owner in any way um, because they're a part of this economic blockade. Um, And, you know, Lamaco's also mentioned an option would be being bought out by Little Caesar's. So we saw with Starbucks, um, they bought out all of their franchise locations. So that means that the brand does not and cannot exist in Russia anymore. So the Russian who bought all of those locations turned it into sort of a, a pseudo Starbucks version. So it's now called Stars Coffee. Uh, and they use white cups with green logos, but it's just sort of slightly off version of Starbucks. Um, so Lomako says, you know, if Little Caesars can't really cut him loose from this franchise agreement to give him the freedom to operate, he says being bought out could also be an option, which would mean the brand would not exist in Russia anymore. Interesting. So for now, it's almost a little Caesars in limbo, I suppose. But does it look like the brand we know so well in Michigan? I mean, you've seen photos, you've talked with the owner. Give us a visual of this rogue little Caesars in Moscow. It looks exactly like the very familiar Little Caesars that you would see on any street in Michigan or across the U.S. Um, I mean, I think the whole point of a franchise is the consistency, right? So, you know, photos that Bogdan sent me, it's it's showing the bright orange branding that we know so well, but there's Russian signs everywhere. Um, there's a hot and ready zone. Um, there's photos of a bike carrier with a bright orange pizza warmer on his back. And in, in some of the stores, there's a wall of company history. Um, and so it has some photos of 
people we know really well in Michigan, like Mike and Marion Illich, who are the founders of Little Caesars and are um, big in Detroit, and then also photos of the Detroit Red Wings. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was I was thinking about this sort of thread through time between Russia and Detroit and maybe even Little Caesars. You know, I think of the Russian Five with the Detroit Red Wings in the 90s. Anyways, I don't know if there's anything there, but that's interesting. Rose, I got to know, how in the world did you get in touch with this guy? Uh, that's a good question. Um, back last spring, I was doing a lot of reporting on the Michigan brands that had or had not pulled out of Russia yet. And uh, when Little Caesars announced, I had learned that it that they had opened their first franchise location. So I was kind of curious, you know, what this, what the impact of this was on a franchise owner, you know, obviously there's, there's so much focus on what's happening in Ukraine and, and rightly so there's so much pain and suffering there, but a lot, you know, there's also been an impact in Russia and Russians are also feeling the pain of this war. So I was hoping to get in contact with the person who opened this franchisee and I found him on Instagram and we, we exchanged a few messages. He wasn't ready to talk at the time last spring, but we um, reconnected recently and uh, he was happy to tell his story at this point in time. Wow. I mean, it seems that Lamaco spoke very openly to you about his position on the war too. He says he understands little Caesar's stance on doing business in Russia because, quote, I have a very clear understanding of what's going on and who is the invader and who is the victim here, unquote. It seems to me he's implying that Ukraine is the victim in this conflict. Did, did he seem worried at all about speaking out against Russian military actions? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's important to note, you know, Bogdan is he's fully understanding that um, Ukraine is the one who was invaded here. And they are the ones who are really experiencing most of the suffering of this conflict. Um, and their lives have really been upended. Um, and so he didn't seem particularly worried about Russia's about speaking out about Russia's military actions. I think just broadly, he's concerned about his family. He's concerned about the war continuing to be dragged out um, and just kind of, you know, being a, a country that um, is engaged in such an active military combat. Hmm. And, and finally, Rose, did Lomako say anything about how long he thinks he can keep this up? I mean, without the financial help of the franchise, with the sanctions in the way keeping him from paying Little Caesars for their brand, how long does Lomako think this will last? He didn't really indicate, but, you know, kind of the unspoken thing is he's planning to keep his business going. I think it would be a huge financial loss for him to shut down. So he doesn't really have any plans to stop at this point. Um, and he's just hoping to, to, I think, get Little Caesar's attention to try to see if something can change. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure if Little Caesars will budge on this because they're also facing a very, they're in a very difficult position as well. They are a major global brand who is a part of this pretty rigid economic blockade that's going to be an important part of addressing the war. That was Rose White joining us again on the show. She's a reporter with MLive. You can read her fascinating story on MLive.com called A Russian Still Serves Pizzas Despite Little Caesars Cutting Ties during war. Really interesting blend of pizza and politics there, honestly. Rose, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. Heading back to Michigan now for another business story of a very different kind. The small town of Menominee might not seem like a prime location for Michigan's biggest marijuana retailers. And yet, a web of lawsuits reflects the competition around recreational marijuana in this town of about 8,000 people. 
Reporter Gus Burns has a story on MLive.com all about the weed war that's intensifying in this Upper Peninsula town. And he's here on the show to tell us more. Good morning, Gus. Good morning. So first, I guess a little background here. What makes Menominee, Michigan such a prime location for a recreational dispensary? Really, it is prohibition in Wisconsin where they do not have recreational marijuana. And the nearest place where it's legal is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Yeah, I mean, tell us a bit about maybe the potential that these dispensaries see there. I mean, it's only a town of, what, 8,300 people about. But what kind of economic impact might having a dispensary there make for these companies? Well, right now there are at least uh, eight companies vying to open in the small city, which obviously that with that population size, even if you look at surrounding cities, which are not that populated in the UP, it's probably actually one of the, Menominee's got one of the higher populations in its area, um, that would not support that. So obviously they are projecting a lot of income to come from out of state, from Wisconsin, and they're expecting customers who to drive over the border. And, and within uh, one of the lawsuits, they called it tens of millions in revenue that they expect. Because it's going to take years probably before Wisconsin has a regulated system when they move that direction. If they move that direction. Good point. But we are also talking about federal legalization soon, so they may not have much of a choice down the road. So if there's so much money to be made in Menominee, Surely there's some legal reason that we don't see like a mile long stretch of weed stores in the heart of town or something. Right. The way the Michigan system is set up, it is all on local officials. The majority of uh, communities across the state, I think it's right now it's around 1,400 and we only got like 1,480 um, in the in the whole state of cities, townships, villages have opted out indicating that they've passed ordinances saying we don't want marijuana in our community. So Menominee was among those, and then they some some are starting to see the benefits of the tax benefits that these small communities are getting, and the local regulators are making changes and adding ordinances. For instance, in Menominee, where they made a decision back in 2020 to allow two businesses in their town. Two businesses, right, and those two businesses were selected. I believe you reported it was Rise and the Fire Station. Though 14 businesses initially applied, right, and those who lost out feel that the process was unfair. What claims are those retailers making about how the two retailers did get their licenses? Uh, among the claims, I mean, I, I spoke to some city council members, well, one city council member who said that one of the issues was that they did a scoring system and people are just kind of chipping away at the scoring system. And this has happened in other communities where they tried to pre-establish a way that's fair to select the applicants. But there's always people fighting about whether or not the way they did scored something was right. But one of the things I heard was that Loom, who is one of the companies that is is part of the was was part of a lawsuit and is part of a settlement agreement that we can talk about later, they actually scored as much as the two that received licenses. And there was some discrepancy. Um, I was told whether one of them copy and pasted their application, which should have been a deduction. You know, it gets into the nitty gritty of that, especially when you're talking about a limited number of spaces. Um, some of those companies that were part of lawsuits were not in the top, you know, five. They were some of them were on the lower end. So I, I don't necessarily know all the arguments they're making as to why, other than saying that the process was bad, therefore it shouldn't stand. And so moving through this nitty gritty of what happened in the court systems around licenses and Menominee, eventually the lawsuit from these eight companies was dismissed, right? And the two retailers did open at that point. 
But that wasn't the end of this controversy. Tell us about the settlement that was reached with the Menominee City Council. So this was in a holding pattern. The lawsuit came, the two companies were told to hold on until this settled. Uh, COVID came, everything went through the court slowly. And then uh, earlier this year, I believe it was May, the judge dismissed the lawsuit from the competing companies. And then in the meantime, those companies had proposed a settlement agreement that said, hey, we'll, we'll stop all litigation if you give us licenses in the city. So it was dismissed, indicating that their ordinance was proper or that the courts weren't going to make a change. And some people on the majority of the council decided that they wanted to still give these businesses licenses. So they signed the settlement agreement that really wasn't necessary because they had kind of won the, the lawsuit. Again, a lot of moving parts, but the long and short of it is that the city council has opened the way for more dispensaries to come in to Menominee, right? Well, that's where it was. And then you get the new lawsuit from those two original companies. They're saying, hey, man, we, oh, wow. we got the right to open our stores years ago now. We did the process right. The judge said the process is okay. Now you're trying to add competition that we never expected when we were part of this whole this competition for licenses. So they're saying that's uh, unfair, and they filed a federal lawsuit. And what could happen from that, I haven't seen it filed yet, but they could, as what happened in the first time, they weren't allowed to open while they resolved the court issues. They might file another request that the judge stop the issuance of any licenses until this new court matter is resolved, um, which would allow them probably they're, – they're both open now. They opened this summer, those two companies that won originally, may allow them to keep operating while this federal lawsuit plays out. Yeah. And I mean, this is why I said in the intro, sort of like a tangled web of litigation that's going on. And on top of all of that, there are some allegations of conflict of interest among some city council members. And it's complicated local politics, but also an important look at how these decisions are made anywhere in the state. You can read all about it on MLive.com. But Gus, I want to focus right now on the residents of Menominee. Clearly, an ordinance had originally said, you know, two weed stores allowed. That suggests that maybe the people didn't want to see Menominee become a sort of marijuana boomtown. And after the settlement, after the change in the ordinance, which raises the cap on dispensaries, some locals are taking action. How are they trying to push back against the potential influx of dispensaries? Well, I mean, I've heard from a few residents and kind of in business leaders who didn't want to be on the record. I've gotten some emails and, you know, I mean, they're just, it doesn't sound like people are, were at these city council meetings clamoring against anything that was happening. They're just kind of sitting back like wondering why things are happening the way they are, and then questioning the motives of the decisions that are made by the elected officials. So, you know, I'm, I'm hearing things like, oh, someone might be benefiting from the sale of real estate. So, I mean, now, I mean, they're kind of stuck. They're, they're stuck waiting for this lawsuit to play out to see what happens. And, uh, you know, I've talked to some off-the-record people saying that, you know, well, this is, we got, our, our main recourse is to recall these people if we don't like what they're doing. But we haven't seen any recall petitions or anything like that so far. Yeah, well, all of it just goes to show how almost five years after marijuana was legalized in Michigan, it's still a sticky issue with a lot of questions to be answered in some instances. You can read more about tensions over recreational marijuana licenses in the town of Menominee by checking out Gus Burns' story on MLive.com. Gus, thanks for your time. Thank you. College football kicks off this weekend in Michigan. Let's take a quick look at who's playing when and where you can watch. I'll just move east to west here to avoid any bias. The Eastern Michigan Eagles play tonight, Friday, in Ypsilanti. 
They'll face the Bison of Howard University at 6.30 p.m. You can tune in on ESPN+. The Wolverines kick off their season with a home game at the Big House in Ann Arbor. And despite Coach Jim Harbaugh's three-game suspension, they're still heavy favorites to beat East Carolina. Kickoff is Saturday at noon, streaming on Peacock. And in Lansing, a two-for-one Michigan matchup as Michigan State are favored to win their opener against Central Michigan University. Kickoff at Spartan Stadium is set for 7 p.m. tomorrow, Saturday, and the game will be aired on Fox Sports. For an inside look at the Spartans, the Wolverines, or the Detroit Lions, subscribe to MLive Sports Pods, produced by yours truly, the Spartan Confidential, the Wolverine Confidential, and the Dungeon of Doom. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks. We don't always have a weather section here on MLive's news podcast, but the past couple weeks have been unusual. Anyone who lives in Michigan is no stranger to swings and weather, but a storm system late last week was way out of the ordinary, even for Michigan. Joining us is meteorologist Mark Torregrossa. Hi, Mark. Howdy. So late last week, a powerful storm system moved through several parts of the state. I happened to be in Grand Rapids Thursday night to see a show with my dad, and we hurried into the venue right as the storm passed through. There were crazy strong winds ripping through downtown, blowing over the signs on the sidewalk. Sirens were going off. And then that night and into the next day, MLive had lots of coverage of the storm. Mark, tell us about this unusual storm system and the damage it left in its wake. Okay, well, it was a, it was a significant severe weather outbreak by Michigan standards. Seven tornadoes and numerous wind damage reports. Five deaths. Now, I haven't looked back, but I, you know, I've been doing this for 34 years. I've been in Michigan for 30 of those. And I'm trying to think back to when we had more deaths in a severe weather outbreak. And I think it's been quite a while. Uh, What happened was, remember the weird Hurricane Hillary that came into California? Mm -hmm. That was actually one of the pieces of the energy that made it our way last Thursday. So that hurricane came up into California, went up into Idaho, went across Montana, across the Canadian border, down through Minnesota, and then to the southeast into Michigan. At the same time, there was another disturbance, and there was enough wind energy, what we call a jet stream, probably because of both of those disturbances kind of teaming up on us. So it was a really kind of bizarre setup, and it had enough oomph that it created, you know, kind of an out-of-the-ordinary severe weather setup for Michigan. Absolutely. I remember a lot of people, friends I have throughout the Midwest, talking about this this heat dome that was the word getting thrown around. Are you saying that as well was connected to Hurricane Hillary, or what was that heat dome, and were we sort of on the edge of it? We were on the edge of it, and we've heard all summer long about intense killer heat in the middle part of the country. Meanwhile, here in Michigan, we've been like, what are you talking about? This is beautiful. Well, we're on the edge of it. And what does heat do? Heat is energy. And energy turns into storms. So we have that, we, in that day, we had that heat hot dome inch into our area. And we had what I called Kansas-like instability. So instability means the air is not where it wants to be. Hot, humid air at the ground is light. It wants to be aloft, and colder air aloft wants to be down to the ground. And when that air is doing that, 
that's a recipe for severe weather. And that's what we were into. We had a temperature of 91 degrees in Grand Rapids with a dew point of 81. Now, I've seen the dew point above 80 in Michigan a couple of times, uh, but that just means that the air was so buoyant that soon as a disturbance came by and set it off, storms exploded. And that led to a lot of storm damage. You can read coverage of that on MLive.com. And of course, we'll keep monitoring that storm damage. So Mark, it was hot and humid late last week. And then we saw temperatures plummet in some parts of the state. You reported that it even froze in the Upper Peninsula last weekend and in the northern part of the Mitten. Is it unusual to see our first frost this early? I looked, and it's not actually up there. Uh, You know, they're a lot colder in the UP and some of the interior parts of uh, northern Michigan than we are. So when I looked back, the average 32-degree temperature in those parts that froze this past weekend, average date is August 30th. So we're talking August 27th, 28th. So it's actually a fairly normal uh, situation by 30-year historical standards. Now remember, we have a warmer atmosphere now. And uh, so in recent years, it's been mid-September before places have frozen up there. So it kind of feels early, but looking back the last 30 years, it's not really that early. Sure. And you have another recent story on MLive.com that looks at the weather ahead. Mark, it sounds like a little bit of everything. How's this weekend shaping up and what can we expect going into September? This weekend looks like it's a flat out summer weekend. And the first week of uh, September looks like it's almost some of the hottest weather of the season on the way with temperatures in the 90s. And that is one thing we've also seen. I talked about how in recent years, it's been rare to see a freeze in northern Michigan in late August. What's been very common is to see a hot spell in September. Um, It was maybe three, four, five years back. We had a whole week right around Labor Day that was the hottest September week we've ever experienced with about five to seven days, even in the Northland, around 95 degrees. And it almost looks like we're going to duplicate that again coming up next week with a lot of 90 to 95s. Well, it looks like a little bit more summer for those that enjoy the hot weather. It's great to get some context behind some of the temperatures that we're seeing. Mark Torregrosa is a meteorologist with MLive. You can read his work at MLive.com weather. Thanks for your time, Mark. Hey, no problem. Enjoy the weather. And that's all for this week. I'm Patrick Shea. Thanks, as always, for tuning in to Michigan News from MLive. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And most of all, have a great weekend. Have a great weekend.